convinced I could do my job without too much trouble, wouldn't even break a sweat. But when it gets to be this time of year, nobody comes up to me and says, man, I wish I had your job. See, you know, I, I used to be like that. What a great gig, getting paid to read, write, teach, share in pe other people's lives. Um, yes, please. So, all right, fine, I'll admit it. it I mean, it is... It is pretty great. But if you think doing my job is easy, well, then I'd invite you to step up during this season. I mean, you tried grading exams and final papers for students with stage four level spring fever warring with sometimes crushing expectations of well-meaning parents and friends. Wait, what did you think I was talking about? Teaching at a university is all fun and games until one of the Volvo-driving, tweed-suit-wearing tyrants pulls out a red pen. I have a confession to make. I don't like grading. Do not like it. Cannot recommend. One of my grad school professors told a bunch of us teaching assistants one time, they're whining about grading tests and papers. And he said, look, nobody ever got into teaching because they liked grading. And we all sort of knitted our brows and nodded sagely, yeah, I know what you mean. Now, the other reason exam time can be so tough is that no matter how explicit I am, about my students making sure to turn everything in by a specified time and date. There's always a couple of things I have to crack down on. I'll say, don't turn it in late. I'm cracking down this semester. As my wife would say, mm-hmm. No, I, I mean it this time. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I'm going to tell you something. Don't tell my students, but I'm something of a pushover. I, no, it's true. I have colleagues who have no qualms about failing students. Very, they don't even need much of a pretext to do it. But, I mean, I don't want to flunk anybody because they don't, I don't have their paper turned in. I mean... Maybe it was my fault, right? Maybe they did turn it in and I just lost it. That's how my mind works. One time I had a student who was getting an A minus in the class, but I still hadn't received her final essay. So I emailed her like a couple of times, I mean, just to see where it was. I didn't want her to flunk. There's no, no, no response. So I, you know, I start getting kind of anxious because I got turned in grades. I don't want to punish this young woman. She's been an, excellent student all semester long. So I decided I'll email her one more time, give her one more chance. And about an hour later, just as I was ready to submit grades, my finger hovering over the submit button, I get this 
email. It's pretty fevered, actually. And it has the essay attached. Now, look, let me be honest with you. I, I wasn't really very optimistic that she'd have an excuse that I would find acceptable. I mean, one that would excuse her of having made me feel frantic about failing her, as well as making the whole rest of the class wait for their grades. I mean, I've heard just about every excuse you can imagine. But by this point, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, so I opened her email. And it was exceedingly apologetic. She wanted me to know how sorry she was for missing the deadline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Heard that before. So I braced myself for the excuse, right? Flat tire, funeral for a dear beloved hamster named Kevin, an elderly friend of the family in Des Moines suffering from a particularly debilitating case of lumbago requiring an unexpected road trip. I, I have, I've heard just about everything. But she said, dear Dr. Penwell, I know this is late and I apologize. I've had it done for a couple of days now. Unfortunately, I was at my stepfather's house this weekend and he barricaded us in the house during a standoff with the police that lasted through the night. He doesn't have Wi-Fi. <laughs> and I was stuck there, and I couldn't submit my essay to you. I'm so sorry. You want to know what I said there, and hard-nosed jerk that I am? OK. <laughs> you win. I have no words. I mean, but sometimes there are no words, right? I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. I mean, some things are so amazing or so outrageous or so maddening that you just can't find words to wrap around them. Getting married, crushing it in the interview, sipping coffee at a sidewalk cafe in Rome, Dropping a bowling ball on your big toe? Witnessing an act of selflessness by someone who doesn't know anyone else is looking? Being talked into eating raw oysters by people who say they're your friends? <laughs> Seeing a young woman find her voice in a world that tells her she'll never be good enough? The smell of hyacinth and verbena in spring. The taste of peach ice cream in August. The sound of your child's voice when the police finally put her on the phone after explaining that there's been an accident. The feeling of laughing until your stomach hurts, watching a child being brought into the world, holding the hand of someone on their journey out of this world. Hearing about state legislatures crashing through guardrails Thelma and Louising it off moral cliffs while focusing their considerable energies on persecuting drag queens and transgender kids. Or hearing about judges and other politicians trying to convince the world they know more about pregnant bodies than the FDA obstetricians or the people who could potentially yet be pregnant. I mean, sometimes there just aren't words because the world is so complex, it's too wonderful, too horrible 
too beautiful, and too ugly, too, too funny, and, and too sad. I mean, sometimes words just don't seem to work. And so you don't say anything. But there are other times when the reason that you say nothing has more to do with the facts that you understand. Do you know that words just aren't enough? That something more is required of you. That if you try to get by with just words, you'll have completely missed the point. I mean, sometimes words get in the way of doing what you know you have to do. When the kids were really young, I remember some great injustice being perpetrated. I don't remember now what it was, actually, but uh, we told Samuel that he better make it right with his sister. And so he said, I'm sorry. And Mary was furious, and she crossed her arm, and she looked away, and she said, I don't want your sorries. Sometimes we know, don't we? Sometimes we know. I mean, words aren't enough. Sometimes words are a way of deflecting, uh, of distracting us from doing the very thing that the situation calls for, uh, of doing whatever's necessary to make things right. So I, you know, I was thinking about words as I was preparing for this sermon. It's Easter Sunday, holiest day in the Christian year, right? You're going to deal with Jesus on Easter. Well, you ask any preacher and they'll tell you, you better grab a hold of some good words. But the thing that jumped up and kind of smacked me in the face as I was thinking about all this big stuff was the empty tomb. I mean, what words can we find that, 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 that'll do that one justice? Empty tomb. I mean, it was supposed to be occupied. Wasn't it? In Matthew, when the women arrived, the stone's still blocking the door. And then, boom, an earthquake. Angel shows up, rolls back the stone, and lo and behold, nothing there. There's no Jesus, no, no, no body, no, there's nothing. Now, what are you, you going to say to that? How, how are you going to explain that one down at the pub after work? Empty tomb. I mean, that looms pretty large in Christian symbolism, doesn't it? I mean, somebody starts talking about the cross, and you can be pretty sure that the empty tomb isn't too far behind. And why not? I mean, the empty tomb stands as a, as a kind of a, a placeholder for the more abstract concept of resurrection. You say empty tomb, and I mean, what else are you going to say, really? There's a lot of attention on that one. Resurrection, empty tomb. Christianity has a lot riding on those things. But then I got to thinking, you know, <clears throat> all the trumpets and the flowers and loud exclamations of victory over death and the up from a, the grave you rose stuff. I mean, that's all pretty flashy. But still, it's an empty tomb, which, I mean, everything else aside for a moment is just, it just kind of sits there, doesn't it? Empty, I mean. I, I know we use the empty tomb as a symbol, but maybe our symbol's doing more work than we realize. I mean, we look at the empty tomb, and it's easy to think that 
<clears throat> you know, since it's empty, all the critical work's already been done. God tapped Jesus on the shoulder on Easter Sunday morning a couple thousand years ago, and bam! Jesus is up making plans to go to Applebee's for Easter dinner. Right? Everything's changed. Jesus rose. His followers still breathe a sigh of relief. We sing the songs, smell the flowers, and think, I wonder if the ham has finished cooking by the time the grandkids show up for dinner and start rubbing their chocolate-covered hands all over the new white living room sofa. I mean, it's, it's, it's nice. Easter gets wrapped, uh, draped in bunnies and pastels. Well, because the empty tomb. But you see, I mean, maybe that's just a bit too easy. The way Easter often gets celebrated, it's maybe too effortless to think that the empty is the work. That the missing body is the whole point. But the empty tomb is really just that. I mean, it's just empty. It doesn't mean anything if Jesus isn't out there on the road ready to meet the two Marys as they hurry to Galilee to do what's been asked of them. If the two Marys, pondering the empty tombs, trying to work out theories of the atonement, they're standing there arguing about the nature of crucifixion and resurrection, well, then they're never going to go outside and hear the voice of God in the voice of the one whom they meet on the road, which is so often where God shows up anyway, out on the road while we're headed to do the work that's been given to us. The resurrection is central, of course, but, but when we say that, we have to know that we're also saying that Jesus didn't just stick around and make a shrine out of the empty tomb. He didn't stick around to bask in the glory of his victory. Instead, he shuffled out of his jammies and he got to work. Now, in Matthew's gospel, the men don't even show up at the tomb. It's, it's the women. I mean, really, isn't it always the women, right, who show up? Matthew doesn't record any words that they might have said. They had no words. Well, what are you going to say? But I suspect that that's because sometimes rather than talk, the thing that needs to be done is to go, to seek, to do. When they found out what had happened, the women didn't pitch a tent and say, empty tomb, that's what we were looking for, and that's all we need. We should stick around here and maybe invite people to come in and inhabit the sacred space. We can have coffee and donuts in the vestibule and put people in charge of dusting the big stone out front that we've since made into a monument. I mean, look around. Plenty of room for parking. No, I mean, the, the moment that the women see the emptiness, they start looking for explanations. Once they see Jesus is gone, they, they, they want the lowdown. They don't want to waste time talking they get gone. But, but before they get too far down the road, they run into Jesus. But notice where Jesus is. He's outside. 
The women don't find him until they go outside and start down the road away from the tomb. The emphasis in Matthew's gospel seems less to be on what happened than what happens next. That's why Matthew has Mary Magdalene and the other Mary burning up the road, not sitting around talking about it, having meetings whose whole purpose, it seems, is to schedule other meetings. What work does the resurrection achieve? Victory over death, freedom from fear, salvation from sin. However you want to talk about it, but the real question to us is, okay, now that you've got this shiny new resurrection, what are you going to do with it? You going to hang out with it? Set up a shrine to it? Serve lattes? Thinking that all the work was done 2,000 years ago? Or are we going to realize that the freedom that resurrection brings is the freedom to back out of the tomb, walk down the road, and get back to work? You see, it's not that the resurrection isn't cause for celebration. It is. It's just that maybe we've often misunderstood what celebration is. It's too easy to think that it means like release from duty, a time to set down our work and head to the party. But the story of the gospel is that resurrection doesn't free us from labor. It offers us labor worth giving our lives to. We find our greatest joy, our greatest expression of celebration in the work among the people work that we've been entrusted to do. What, what work is that? Oh, that's a good question. Well, it's a continuation of the work that Jesus himself did, isn't it? Healing the sick, feeding the hungry, setting free the captives, remembering the forgotten, all that stuff. Like, re remember, three chapters ago, back in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells the parable about the sheep and the goats. You remember that one? Lives that are True to the vision of God's new reign are lives that find a way to give food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, lives that welcome the stranger, lives that clothe the naked and care for the sick, that visit the imprisoned. The least of these. But what do all these things have in common? Well, by and large, you can't do any of them in the tomb. You have to walk back through the door, walk down the road, and get back to work. It doesn't mean that the empty tomb's not important. It is. It's critical. You remember it, you love it, but you see it as a place from which you are sent back out because that's where the sick and the hungry and the stranger and the imprisoned are. That's where the work is and that's where Jesus is, turns out. You want to know what Easter is all about? Well, 
I don't even have words sufficient to describe it. So the most loving thing I can tell you is that you're just going to have to get back to work and find out. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.